introduce our spiritual director, Ami Diller. Welcome everyone. I am absolutely thrilled to introduce Dr. Ellen Wallace, who's a prominent voice in the emerging discussion between contemporary Buddhist thinkers and scientists who question the materialistic presumptions of the 20th century paradigms, which we desperately need question. He left his college studies in 1971 and moved to Dharamsala, India, to study Tibetan Buddhism, medicine, and language. Who's ordained by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and over 14 years as a monk, he studied with and translated for many of this generation's greatest lamas. In 1984, he resumed his Western education at Amherst College, where he studied physics and the philosophy of science. He then applied that background to his PhD research at Stanford on the interface between Buddhism, Western science, and philosophy. Since 1987, he has been a frequent translator and contributor to the meetings between the Dalai Lama and prominent scientists. And he has written and translated over 40 books. Along with his scholarly work, Alan is regarded as one of the West's preeminent meditation teachers and retreat guides. He's the founder and director of the Santa Barbara Institute for Consciousness Studies and he is the motivating force behind the development of the Center for Contemplative Research in Tuscany, Italy, which is an exciting new venture that he is going to be talking about tonight. So please warmly welcome Dr. Ellen Wallace. This is unfair. I can't see you. It would be nice to have some light, yeah. That's better. You can't see many faces. Is this on? The microphone is on? Very good. Good evening, everyone. What an honor that you showed up. Very pleased to see you, especially now that I can. Oh, there we go. That sounds like volume to me. Well, it's a privilege to be with you and to accept this invitation by some very dear friends of mine and an old friend, Ravi Verma, who's not here, he's gone back to his native India. Um, so I'd like to share with you some themes tonight that I've drawn from multiple sources, but primarily from my spiritual and philosophical home, that is of Buddhism. I think they're very important issues, very important issues. You would like me to speak a bit louder. My voice tends, does tend to drop but I will try to pick it up. Can you hear me better now? Okay, very good. So the topic that I'd like to address tonight, if this laptop comes on, there we go, uh, has to do with something that is very much in the news nowadays, very much in the media, happiness, happiness. Many people have ideas and keys to happiness. But before even launching into the topic, I'd just like to raise the issue, how important is it? So what's up with happiness? Is that really important? Is, what does that have to do with a meaningful life? the purpose of life, living the most meaningful, fulfilling life. And there are different views about this. One can say in Buddhism, we often hear, if you listen to classical Buddhist Dharma talks, you'll often hear it said that all sentient beings wish to be free of suffering, all wish to find happiness. But many people will deny themselves happiness. 
for various reasons, sometimes very profound ones. Many will take on suffering, and sometimes for very meaningful reasons. So how important is happiness, really? Is it worth aspiring for? Or the kind of the phrase that just came to my mind this evening was, is happiness a worthy end in itself? Or is its value really as a means to something else? So the topic, the title for this evening's talk is Genuine Happiness. And through the cultivation of cognitive intelligence. So genuine happiness, of course, can be defined in different ways. Kind of looking at this is a little bit awkward here because I can't see the whole screen. Let's see if I can fix that. You can, and I can. Maybe I'll just have to read it over. I'm just wondering how to get rid of this little. Oh, I, I found. I just found it. Just a second here. <laughs> Voila. I'm a real tech whiz. When, when I see an X, X marks a spot. Hit it. See what happens. See if I can come up a little bit. Whoop. Okay, jump. Oh, and I need to do that one. Okay, I'm getting my act together here. Voila. So genuine happiness through the cultivation of cognitive intelligence. So for the psychologists, mind scientists in the room, I think all of you know the term conation, the adjective cognitive. And unfortunately, this term that is so simple, straightforward, and enormously important has not yet made its way into the common vernacular or common usage in English language. And I think you'll see very quickly how important it is that it, that it becomes part of our ordinary working vocabulary. Conation. I often think of the mind as having different aspects, specifically starting with conation, and then attention, our ability to attend to whatever we wish to focus on cognition, the way we apprehend phenomena, whether with clarity, with dullness, with projections, and so forth, and then finally emotional. So I often speak of four types of intelligence, but it starts with cognitive, and this brings us to the term, which is, you'll see, it's a very simple term, conation, the mental faculty of purpose, of desire, of volition. It has to do with our aspirations, our ideals, our intentions, has to do with the answer to the question, what's your life about? What are you here for? What do you wish for? What is your heart's desire? And so clearly, on occasion, we can have foolish desires. We can have wise desires, ill-conceived desires. And so then, to take this noun, turn it into an adjective, cognitive intelligence. We all know about IQ, the intelligence quotient, thanks to Dan Goldman and other psychologists, journalists and so forth. Emotional intelligence has made its way onto the, into the public domain over the last 20 years or so. But I don't know if there's any type of intelligence that's more important than cognitive intelligence. And for this reason, cognitive intelligence, that we are wise in terms of conation, the kind of desires we embrace, the kind of aspirations and ideals to which we devote our lives. Is it possible to embrace an ideal, an aspiration, a goal, which is ill-conceived from the very outset, in which case that would be a flagrant case of cognitive unintelligence. So I'm simply going to define cognitive intelligence, and then you'll try it on for yourself, see whether it's useful, whether you can apply it to your own life in a very meaningful and helpful way. So cognitive intelligence, the ability to discern which desires and intentions truly lead to one's own and others' well-being, and to adopt them, 
while releasing, letting go of desires and intentions that undermine one own, one's own and others' well-being. So being wise in terms of the choices and the desires that we embrace. So over the decades now, from my undergraduate time, uh, years at uh, University of California, San Diego, a long, long time ago, I was heading out on a career in biology, specifically environmental studies, ecology, that was my passion, that was going to be my whole life as I conceived of it then. And so a lot of exposure to biology, to Darwinism, to natural selection and so forth. And we know that in terms of evolution, which I think is an utterly brilliant theory with tremendous explanatory power, uh, I think is a marvelous scientific theory and a very poor religion. Um, but as a scientific theory, which is what Darwin had in mind, he wasn't, didn't conceive of himself as starting a new religion, um, there's a theme that comes up in natural selection, evolution, and that is the principle of parsimony, being cheap. And that is you get just what you need. So if a cheetah can run down a gazelle by running 60 miles an hour, the cheetah will not evolve to run 70 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour. You get what you need. And evolution, very simply put, is just utilitarian. It has nothing to do with uh, getting better and better. Natural selection, evolution is all about simply surviving and procreating. And so if you survive and procreate your success, you get a check after your life. And if you don't, like me, then you don't get a check. <laughs> so biologically, I'm pretty irrelevant because I have no kids and I don't have any intention. I'm a little bit old for that, I think, by now. And so you get what you need. You get what you need. But I've asked, I've had tremendously good fortune to meet brilliant people both within Dharma, Buddhist Dharma, Christianity, and then science and philosophy. One of the greatest blessings of my life is the extraordinary people I've met, especially over the last 50 years, but no, in fact, the whole, the whole lifetime. And so I've rubbed shoulders with some really brilliant world-class biologists, and I've asked them a very simple question. Especially in light of this principle of parsimony, why is it that we human beings, with our very exaggeratedly large frontal cortex, why is it that we have so much more intelligence, creativity, imagination, memory, and language skills, which are enormously important for passing on knowledge from generation to generation, writing skills, why is it that we have so wildly more intelligence, creativity, and so forth than we possibly need for survival and procreation? If we look at some of our fellow species on the planet, like alligators and crocodiles, I think it's a couple of hundred million years they've been here. And we human beings for 200,000 Homo sapiens sapiens. And so you don't have to be very smart to survive. As my understanding is a crocodile has a brain about the size of a walnut. So they would not do very well on an IQ test. But here they are. And as much as we human beings are desecrating the environment, the crocodiles may outlive us all, let alone the rats and the cockroaches. I think they're very well adapted. But we have this intelligence. And if, if we think of ourselves as many evolutionists, evolutionists do, is we are simply animals, and I've met many philosophers and, and psychologists and biologists that are very keen on this. We are just animals, and the mind's consciousness, spirit, is all simply a function of the brain. And now we have that straight, now let's get going. If we think of ourselves simply as biological organisms. We are biological organisms, that is, our bodies are for sure, but if you say that's all there is to it, then what is your explanation? If the whole of human existence, human nature, human capacity can be understood in terms of genetic mutation and survival, natural selection, 
how on earth did we get this massive surplus of intelligence? And of course, we have these exceptional individuals throughout history, the Mozart, the, the Einstein, of course, and many geniuses, and geniuses in all different types of fields, but even setting them aside, just folks like ourselves. Why do we have so much more than we possibly need? And I've never heard a satisfying or compelling answer to that question. So I I'm actually completely convinced that for all my deep respect for Darwin, his brilliance, his careful observation, the, the brilliant theory that he conceived, it has a great explanatory power for us as mammals. But it seems to fall short in terms of ethics, in terms of meaning of life, in terms of nature of mind, nature of consciousness. I don't think it explains everything about us. I think the evidence demonstrates that. That's not an article of faith, that's an observation. And so I would leave that there. Just why do we have so much intelligence that we simply don't need if all there is to us is our biological existence? And then given this, so here's the list, intelligence, memory, imagination, language skills, why are we as a species and as individuals not becoming happier with each generation and with each year of our lives? It's a very naive question, isn't it? But we've been writing what human civilization with agriculture and so forth, about 10,000 years, written word for quite a number of millennia by now. And so, and especially over the, you know, the last several, several centuries, and the 20th century in particular, I've heard it said, and it may be very well true, that we learned more in the 20th century than in all the preceding centuries combined. And that may very well be true in many respects. The growth of scientific knowledge and the growth of technology, absolutely staggering what happened in the 20th century, continuing, of course, into the 21st. And so with all of this accumulated knowledge, all of the hundreds of thousands, millions of tomes of articles and essays and books, translations and so forth. Is it true that with our accumulated knowledge and learning from Plato and learning from Aristotle and learning from the great church fathers of the Christian tradition and from Shankara and Buddha and Zhuangzi and Lao Tzu, the great sages of humanity, we have them all at our fingertips now. With the internet, it's even easier. And we have so much translated for those of us who speak only English we have such a wealth, kind of an inconceivable amount of wealth, of knowledge from the most brilliant minds in all of human history. So the knowledge is there. And wouldn't it make sense if you'd never visited planet Earth? You were, you were an extraterrestrial just dropping in. But before you came here, you read the tour guide, you know, planet Earth and, human sa and Homo sapiens, and learning about how intelligent we are compared to our nearest neighbors, chimpanzees, gorillas, and so on, I think you might expect, before you arrived, wow, those human beings with that intelligence, they will have to be the happiest critters on the planet. <laughs> really, so much happier than chimpanzees. And dogs? Oh, who's happier, you or your dog? <laughs> but, you know, we've got a, a massive edge because dogs can't write, you know, they can pass on their genes, but they can't really pass on much knowledge. How many different ways can you bark? <laughs> it's pretty primitive, I think. If we as a human civilization, we as Eurocentric civilization, priding ourselves, you know, America number one, I've heard that phrase before. America number one, we are the one, we are the one. Are we happier? 
over the last 2,000 years, 4,000 years? Are we happier in the 20th century than in the 19th century? Happier in the 21st century? We've learned so much more. We have, we've learned, we, we've, we've failed in so many different ways, haven't we? As individuals, as societies, we failed. We tried things that didn't work, that ended in catastrophe. And we have chronicles of that. We have histories of that. It's all there, right? And yet, right now, depression is the most debilitating disease on the planet. Depression. And it's growing. And especially it's growing among young people. Suicide rate and so forth. Young people are getting the worst of it. So I raise this as an initial point, the enigma, the mystery. If we're not happier now in the 21st century with all the accumulated knowledge and now such easy access, click, 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 Google, the great omniscient, quasi-omniscient Google will give you an answer to almost any question you might pose, and be able to cite the greatest sages through all the recorded history. How is it then right now that we as this highly intelligent, ever so educated human species. How is it that we're destroying our environment? How is that possible? It doesn't make any sense, does it? But we are destroying our environment very rapidly. You all know that, so you don't need any commentary from me. It's every single day in the news. We're seeing how we are fouling and desecrating and making this planet unfit for ourselves, let alone the myriad, myriad other species that we're just wiping out, lock, stock, and barrel. How is this possible? And I would suggest there's a simple answer to it, and that is cognitive unintelligence. That we have lost sight of desires and aspirations that truly are conducive to our own and others' well-being. And in so doing, having lost sight of that, we're focusing on types of aspirations and goals, such as ever-growing gross domestic product. Ever heard of that one? That we are succeeding as a society if we're producing more and more and more and more. If we're consuming more. The economies start to panic around Christmas time if we're not consuming as much as they hoped. But if you consume more and more and more, you keep on producing more, can there be more consumption? And the consumer index keeps on going up. There are still intelligent people in the United States and China and Russia and Brazil, all the great consuming nations of the planet, that still think this is a good thing. That this is going to turn out well. That we all consume more and more as a population now at 7.8 billion, growing up to 11, that's about the maximum this planet can possibly handle us. There's still people in positions of power, of government, of business, and education, and so forth, that think this is going to turn out well. How is that possible? Is it not an exercise in idiocy? And so, come back. I've skipped a little bit. Let's go back. Yes, yeah, so now here we go. What are we talking about when we speak of happiness? Say again? Oh, yes, thank you. Okay, I'm going to catch the hang of, hang of this. Et voila. And you've covered that? It's, it's multitasking. You know, I've spent a lot of time developing samadhi, and that's really single-pointed, but now I have to do two things at the same time. All right. There it is. I've already said it. Moving on. All right, two people. One person I tremendously respect. I studied physics quite extensively, studied this man a lot. His life, fascinating life. And of course, I studied his physics as well. And then His Holiness Dalai Lama, he's been my primary spiritual mentor for now 48 years. And so beyond respect, reverence, that he's absolutely earned. But these two brilliant men, in their own ways, very brilliant. And Einstein was deeply concerned with profound philosophical issues, ethical issues. 
and the Dalai Lama deeply concerned with science. He's been an avid student of science, oh, for more than 30 years by now. Really very interested in engaging in high-level conversations with leading scientists from all over the world. And so these two brilliant men have something to say about happiness, and let's give Einstein the first chance. And so here he says, well-being and happiness never appear to me as an absolute aim. I'm even inclined to compare such moral aims to the ambitions of a pig. I like bluntness, you know, say what you, say what you mean. I, he, didn't beat, he didn't beat around the bush there. He didn't pull his punches. If that's what your notion of the meaning of your life is, divine happiness, what's the difference between you and a pig? So a pig, if you're a male pig, you want to be alpha pig, you want to get as much sex as you can handle, you want to get the best food you can, and a really nice, bushy, warm, soft spot in the mud to be able to lie down and rest. And so basically wealth and power and prestige. Pigs are into it, you know, they're into it. And he's not picking on pigs. I think, I'm very sure he's not deprecating pigs here. He's just saying, you know, give the pig its due. I mean, they're, they're after wealth, power, and prestige. And, and if that's all you're into, if that's it, and for the sake of happiness, then really what makes you in any way, in any significant way, superior to a pig? You're smarter. How's that worked out for you? So on the one hand, he's saying this is just superfluous. You, you, there must be something more noble, more sublime, more meaningful than I want to be happy. And I, I get it. I think he's making a good point. But it's not the only point. So here's another point, and I'm going to get the whole, and you get the whole already. So here's from the Dalai Lama. This is a point he's made many times, but a direct quote. I believe that the very purpose of our life is to seek happiness. Whether one believes in religion or not, whether one believes in this religion or that religion, we're all seeking something better in life. So I think the very motion of our life is towards happiness. So I'm very happy to juxtapose those two quotes, and it looks like a head-on collision. That is, they're just, they're just completely taking opposing positions or attitudes on this point. And the rest of this talk will be, really? Are they really diametrically opposed, or is there something more going on? But you see, I italicized one word here in this very rich quote. We're all seeking something better in life. I think that's simply true. I am. I am. The fact that I accepted an invitation to come here, something, something better. Not really something that I would get out of this better, but a core element of my life is I'd like to live as meaningful life as I possibly can. This has been a priority for a long time. And I thought if I come here, invited my very dear friends, uh, then perhaps I can offer something to the world that can help make it better and, me, and make then my own life yet better in the sense of greater meaning. So I'm very much part of this. I want something better. But everything hinges on that adjective. When you think of, I want something better, what comes to mind? And without interviewing any of you, I think it's very safe to say that you all came here tonight wishing for something better. What did you have in mind? Why come here? Because there are all kinds of ways to seek something better. And so what do we mean by that? And I think thereon hangs the tale. And now I'm finally learning the truth. What I'm suggesting here, and it's going to be the core of everything I share with you tonight, is that Einstein and the Dalai Lama are not making two utterly incompatible statements, but in fact, they're referring to different types of happiness. 
And the Greeks knew a lot about this, and so I'm going to be using Greek terms. Hedonia, the Greek, and then eudaimonia, the Greek. I like it because it's kind of neutral. It's not religious, it has no dogma affiliated with it. But I'm going to be defining them in ways I find most meaningful. I don't think there's one, any one right definition of hedonia or hedonic pleasure or any one right definition of eudaimonia, which is often translated as genuine happiness. These are two definitions that are inspired by Buddhism, but I think are quite universal. And most importantly, I find them very meaningful and very useful. So let's just see how it, let's see how it works. Words and, de- and words, and as we define them, they get traction. They go into usage if people find them useful. And then they start using them. So see whether this is useful to you. Hedonic pleasure I'm defining here as the type of pleasure, happiness, joy, that's derived from what we can get from the world. We go out, as we say in, in the Constitution, with the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. It sounds like a rabbit. Where did the happiness go? Oh, I think it went that way. Oh, that, I think it's her. I think it's that job. I think it's... Let's go get it. Let's go get it. Something to pursue. And we have that as one of our inalienable rights in our Constitution. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So pursuit means it's over there, and I need to run after it, and then try to get it and hold on to it, Maybe I can make it better. So what we can get from the world, and hedonic pleasure, as I'm defining, is dependent upon pleasant sensory and mental stimulation. In other words, something pleasant happens to you. You're thinking pleasant thoughts, you're going down memory lane and lovely nostalgia. You're imagining something, you're thinking positively, the power of positive thinking, you're looking ahead with optimism and you kind of jazz yourself up. It will turn out well, I'm sure it will. Let's do a little bit of cheerleading here. It's gonna be fine, you know? And that makes you happy. It's auto-stimulation. With your own mind trying to make itself happy, uplifting itself. Of course, we have sensual pleasures from all of the five physical senses. And then, of course, you can come in the back door. That is, not the front door of thinking consciously thoughts or seeing something, experiencing, tasting something that you find pleasant, but you can come in the back door, you can take a drug. And that goes directly to the brain, and that can stimulate some of your pleasure centers. So some people like alcohol, and some people like other drugs that may, oh, I've heard marijuana is now legal. Went to a rep to a hotel just a few days ago, and my room smelled of marijuana, and I didn't know what it was, because it had been like 50 years. And I asked my grandson who was with me, what is that? And he looked at me, marijuana. <laughs> where have you been last, the last 50 years? Not in, mar- not in marijuana country, I swear. But you can take, so we have drugs, all kinds of drugs, legal and illegal drugs, that come in the back door. They stimulate the brain, and then it gives rise to a type of hedonia. And then the drug wears off, and then you don't have it anymore. The stimulus is withdrawn or it stops and you don't have it anymore. You stop thinking positive thoughts, optimistic thoughts. You, t- you stop dwelling on pleasant things in the past and as soon as you stop the stimulation, then the resultant pleasure disappears. And the problem with, the, the, that from ple- problem with, built-in problem with pleasure that we get from the world is by and large, and there are exceptions, pleasure that we derive from the world tends to be the case that if I have more, you have less. If the United States has more, Mexico has less. If Europe has more, then North Africa has less, and so forth. There's only so much out there, and if we are fixing on better is something out there, and it's probably more, then this gives rise to inequality very, very rapidly. 
It gives rise to strife, it gives rise to conflict, it gives rise to wars, it gives rise to conflict in the home. He got more, I got less of anything that I value. And so hedonia, nothing bad, hedonia is not bad, but it is not sustainable. And in this world, I think sustainability is one of the most important nouns there is. Sustainable economy, sustainable energy. How about sustainable happiness? And I would say, just generally speaking, hedonia, the pleasure we can get from the world, the pleasure that arises in response to pleasurable stimulus, is not sustainable. I invite you to think. Think of something you really enjoy. Take something really innocent, like maybe gelato, or listening to your favorite piece of music or fragrance, or anything else. You say, boy, that really makes me happy. I really enjoy that. I really enjoy that. And then imagine as a thought experiment being compelled to experience it for 12 hours straight. <laughs> the first gallon of gelato, the first quart is really, really good. And the second quart, and the third quart, and after a while that gelato looks like a sheer torture mechanism. And can you think of anything else? Can you think? of any kind of hedonia that you would actually like to have go on for 12 hours straight? Or does it wear off? I find it interesting. So in this modern world where we've forgotten, I think, more than we have learned about happiness and the true causes of happiness, because there's such a wealth of wisdom in the Greek tradition, the Christian, the Jewish, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Taoist, and so forth. There's such a wealth, and yet, it seems like we've forgotten almost all of it. I read, the, I read the media regularly, and happiness, which is the happiest country in the world? I think it's Finland this year. And then there's Norway and so forth. And, and what are the keys to happiness? And you know, I find almost invariably, they're talking about hedonia. Almost never does the wisdom of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, of Buddha, Shankara, and the great church fathers and so forth, the greatest theologians and the Christian, the Jewish tradition, the Muslim tradition, virtually never as if we have nothing more to learn from them because we're so progressive. But the sages of the world, and this is a very embracing statement I'm about to make, East and West, religious and non-religious, but Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Buddha and great Buddhist sages throughout India, East Asia, Tibet, and so on, and multiple religions, they have focused their attention on a radically different type not more of the same, but a radically different type of happiness, well-being, flourishing. The Greeks called eudaimonia. Buddhists call it samyaksukha, authentic happiness, satsukha, sublime happiness, as opposed to mundane happiness, which is hedonia. And so this term, I'll just translate it as genuine happiness. It is derived here, the way I'm defining it, and there's no question about it. There are multiple definitions. But I'm defining genuine happiness as that type of happiness Joy, contentment, satisfaction that is derived from what we bring to the world, not from what we get from it, and it's not dependent upon pleasant things happening to us, either mentally or sensorily or with drugs and so forth. It's not dependent on pleasant sensory or mental stimulation. And so, I would say very simply put, Einstein was referring to the first of these two. It's what pigs aspire for is hedonia. And sages throughout the world, east and west, of all religions and outside of religion, including nowadays, it's not confined to religion and philosophy, but over the last 20 years with Martin Seligman and a number of other very outstanding psychologists, 
genuine well-being, genuine happiness, eudaimonia, has now made its way into science, into psychology. And it's a fledgling, it's a discipline of psychology that in its infancy, but they're asking really good questions. And they're bringing this into the scientific domain. I think it's a wonderful thing. So now this is a unifier. And that is eudaimonia, genuine well-being, genuine happiness. It's something that cuts across all the borders. It's not encapsulated in any one religion or any one philosophy. And scientists don't have a monopoly on it. It's East and West, ancient and modern. And I think it's one of the most important topics for, uh, for modern humanity. Since we are now focused as a species on consumption, on hedonia, and more is more consumption. So I'd like to just draw this point from the Buddha, two points, I think two slides are specifically Buddhist, or maybe a couple more after that. But the Buddha had a lot to say about happiness. For those of you who study Buddhism, you might think Buddha, Buddha had a lot to say about suffering. Because the first noble truth wasn't happiness is possible, but rather suffering is a reality. So if you're going to start a religion, if you really, I would think this is really bad, bad marketing. This is not like, oh, I want to hear about that. He talked about, I've always been fascinated by suffering. What do you have to say, you know? I don't think it was a very good marketing tool. But it does catch the attention, because who can't relate to suffering? And who would not like it to go away, or at least be diminished? So the Buddha is known for the reality of suffering, the reality of the source of suffering, the possibility of freedom, and the path to freedom. But he also had a lot to say about happiness, and happiness for the general public. This is India 25, 2,600 years ago. And so the layperson, the householder, literally the householder, what kind of happiness can you aspire for and find if you're spending most of your time making a living, making, helping your family out, and just enjoying the happiest life you can as a layperson, whether 2,600 years ago or nowadays, what is within arm's reach? And he said, well, how about these four? First of all, the happiness of ownership. And I, there's a lot of subtext here, which I've just given you the, the bullet, bullet points, but I'll give you the background. When he said the happiness of ownership, he's referring to having enough wealth, ownership, that you can take care of those who are dependent upon you. Your spouse, your children, maybe your parents, maybe other kin, maybe, but those who are reliant upon you, for whom they are your dependent, that you have enough to take care of. So I want to show you how non-trivially I look at hedonia. I do not look at it, at it pejoratively at all. I don't think it's trivial. It is absolutely not trivial. And I'll give you five points to make the case. Having enough food is not trivial. But the pleasure you have from having, having a good meal and not being hungry, that's hedonia. Food, clothing, especially where it's chilly tonight. I heard it gets down to the 30s here. So if you're out there naked, that's going to be a tough night. Or if you're a homeless person living in a cardboard box, that's going to be a tough night. Having clothing, having shelter, this is hedonia. Nothing trivial about this. Having medical care when you need it, when you're injured, when you're ill, having medical care, that's hedonia. And then in our modern world, not so true 500 years ago, but utterly true now, having the education you need to make a livelihood that you find meaningful and, and live on. So food, clothing, shelter, medical care, and education, these are all sources of hedonia. So nothing trivial about that, but let's go even less trivial, if possible, to the pleasures of friendship. The pleasures of friendship, that's hedonia. If the friend dies or vanishes, you don't get that pleasure anymore. 
of having a very satisfying, meaningful marital relationship or romantic relationship. This is eudonia. There's a stimulus there. It's a person that you love, you care for, they care for you. This is hedonia. So we know this is not trivial at all, but we know, as I've witnessed in my life, you know, one couple, they were very happily married, and they had, they just, they just, they had a great life. He had a great reputation, he was rather famous, he was tremendously respected, he was a philanthropist, he was quite wealthy. They happily married, they had happy kids, healthy, they really loved their lives, and then this friend of mine, he got out on his exercise bicycle one day, and he just got onto it and fell, just dropped off the bike and fell over dead. And he was, you know, my age, maybe even a bit younger, in the prime of health until he wasn't. And it was such a shattering blow, especially for his wife, that she said, where my happiness was, now there's just an emptiness, that my happiness is gone. Because it was totally wrapped up in my beloved husband, and now he's not there. And she said, the only reason I don't commit suicide is it'd be a bad example for my kids. It would make my children unhappy. And that was a really good marriage. So I'm not putting down anything here. But hedonia is fragile. It won't last. And it often pales as the years go by. But there is happiness. The, Dalai, the, the, the Buddha is not disparaging this in any way. If you don't have enough food, clothing, shelter, medical care, and then you get it, you get enough, that will make you happy. And then he goes beyond ownership to the happiness of wealth. And this is having a bit more than you need. That you're covering all the bills, you're secure, whatever, you know, whatever expenses you have, you have enough. And then you have a bit more than you need. And he said there's happiness in that. Then you can give your children very nice Christmas presents. Or you can take on a vacation. Or you can practice philanthropy. Or you can help out in this way, in this way. And there's a lot of pleasure in that. Having a bit more than you need and have the joy of giving to loved ones, to community, to, to animals, to whatever you to value. There's some real happiness in that. Having a bit more than you need. And then he adds this one. And I must say, I really savor this one. I, I enjoy this happiness. Because I don't have any debts. I don't even have any email debts. I checked it before I came here. My inbox is empty. I consider emails kind of like a debt. You know, somebody's asking me for something, I haven't given it to them yet. But once I've answered it, then I have an empty inbox. Then I say, okay, I'm like now like Socrates. I just gave away my, you know, paid back that cock, that rooster, and now I can die because I have no debts. And I feel like I can go anytime. I'm ready to go because I have no debts at all. And it's a lot of comfort in that. Financially, nobody will suffer. Not my wife, nobody is dependent on money. She's not really dependent on money anyway. anyway. But having no debt is actually very relaxing. And I think what the Buddha is really referring to here is debt which you don't quite know how you can pay it off. Staggering debt, a burden of debt. Medical expenses. So many sad, sad stories in this country where we like to think of ourselves as civilized and yet people losing their homes because they can't pay the medical bills. So freedom from debt, that's not trivial. And I know it for myself. It's kind of a sense of ease, of happiness. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm clear. I can go anytime. And then finally, and this is the one that is not hedonia. The next one is eudaimonia, clear conscience. And what he's not referring to is you've never, he's not referring to never having made any errors, never having sinned, if you like a religious term, never having harmed anyone, never having any done, done anything shameful. Very few people can claim that. But where we have erred, 
harmed others, acted unintelligently, unwisely, or maybe in a greedy or hateful fashion. We make mistakes, we harm people on occasion, but what can we do? Recognize it, and recognize that, that was really harmful. And feeling genuine reality-based remorse, and if we can apologize, we apologize. If we can make amends, we make amends. And then most importantly, a very strong commitment, I'll do my absolute best not to do that again. Because there's only harm there. It only harmed others. And I don't want that to be my, my mark on reality, is I harmed more than I helped. And so where we've erred, recognize it, experience some degree, the appropriate amount of remorse, and then correct our ways and get on with it. One great Buddhist sage, Shantideva, made a comment that I found so wise because in Buddhism, for those of you, I'm sure many of you have studied it, you know that the power of remorse, the power of purification, so forth, four remedial powers to purify negative karma from harmful things we've done. But Shantideva, this 8th century sage, he said, when it comes to remorse, don't get carried away. Don't overdo it. That if you see you've done something wrong, then good, look upon that with remorse. That's a very wholesome and, and realistic response. I harmed somebody unnecessarily. It was just out of my own stupidity or ignorance, cognitive intelligence perhaps, and have some remorse, but don't let it bog you down. Don't carry that with you. Lead a virtuous life, but if you're carrying guilt, carrying a sense of shame, low self-esteem, this will take all the joy out of virtue. So appropriate amount of remorse. Purify and move on. Let the past be the past and live a good life. Let yourself be reborn every single day and don't re re repeat the mistakes of the past. That's what he means by a clear conscience. I know something about that. I still make mistakes, of course, but I try to pick them up, try not to replicate them. It's quite nice. And so then, let's see where we're going from there. Then there, those who, and again, this is not a sectarian statement at all, Dharma practitioners, not very Buddhist, but people devoting themselves to Dharma, I'm going to make that really simple. You're a Dharma practitioner if you're focusing on the cultivation of eudaimonia and placing a greater priority on that over the pursuit of hedonia. Hedonia is still important, but what's more important to you? Your cultivation of eudaimonia, of genuine well-being, or your pursuit acquisition and then protection of sources of hedonia. So the Buddha was very clear on this point. Let's see if I can get this to move now. It seems to be frozen. Oh, what if I can do? Oh, that will do it. Mine is just going down now. Okay, here's for people really devoted to a spiritual path. Spiritual path to the cultivation of genuine well-being. He said, now there are, there are three dimensions to this. And the first of this genuine happiness it arises from a clear conscience and contentment. Contentment. In terms of hedonia, having an enough and maybe a little bit more so you can be generous, and then being content. Being content when it comes to hedonia, but having an insatiable appetite, a, a joyfully insatiable, insatiable appetite and yearning and thirst for greater and greater eudaimonia, genuine well-being. But it starts with ethics, and this is exactly where this first dimension of happiness is coming from. And ethics in Buddhism is, in fact, very simple. It's the most complex when you go into all the details, but it's, it's the simple when you go right down to the essence of it. An ethical way of life in the Buddhist worldview 
is living a life in our engagement with our fellow sentient beings, and nowadays we must say, with our ecosphere, with the whole environment around us, in a non-violent way, in a non-violent way, by word, by deed, by thought, that's ethical, non-violent. And then when the opportunity arises, we can do something good, we can make a positive contribution, we can bring greater happiness, greater flourishing, we can be of some benefit, then benevolence, benevolence. So those two, nonviolence, benevolence, if your life is focused on those, is kind of your two stars, star, navigating stars, then that's an ethical way of life. And there's a sense of well-being that you're not getting from the world. It's wherever you go, whoever you encounter, you're bringing that with you. So I, that to me is very real. It's very real. And this plays it out. And I would love to see this taught to all children, these simple distinctions. And here's something that any five-year-old can understand. If you receive a gift from someone else, and it was a very thoughtful gift, something you really, you really wanted, and you get it, and you say, oh, but I was really wanting just that. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. I'm really grateful. The joy you're experiencing right now is hedonia. You just got a gift. That was nice. It was one you really wanted. It's hedonia. Nothing wrong with it. On the other hand, tell a five-year-old, and now think about, oh, let's take a cliche, bringing breakfast to your parents in bed. Or giving someone else something. Maybe it's just a hug. Maybe it's a nice gift. Maybe it's some very kind words. But very intentional. I'd like to give you something that you value. Maybe it's some words of appreciation, of respect, of gratitude. Maybe it's something physical. And you give whatever you have to give. And how do you feel when you've just done that? And you see the other person light up, very happy with what you're able to bring to them, and grateful and very pleased. How do you feel? And that's eudaimonia. This is what you brought to the world, the joy of giving someone, offering something, contributing something of value that really makes its mark, as opposed, as opposed to hedonia, receiving. Nothing wrong with receiving. Somebody has to receive. So that's the first one. I read years ago in an article in Time magazine, it was a whole cover issue on happiness. It was like 10, 15 years ago. And the author, I still remember his name, but I won't give it, he said, we are social creatures and we can, we can only thrive in society in our social interactions with each other because we're social creatures. So happiness is always to be found in social interaction with other people. And I'd been a monk by then, 14 years. I think I'd spent maybe three years in solitude and meditation. And I read that and I thought, you haven't gotten out enough. <laughs> or maybe you haven't gone in enough. Is it possible? I find this a fascinatingly interesting question. Is it possible to be in a room alone with no pleasant stimulation at all? Just sitting there in a room like this, just sitting, but all by yourself, just sitting in a room, it's not too cool, not too hot. And can you just sit there for half an hour? And can you experience a sense of well-being, a sense of happiness? Without thinking happy thoughts, without jacking, jacking yourself up, arousing yourself with drugs or anything else, can you find happiness in solitude, in simplicity, as a single individual in the universe? In other words, what are your internal resources? Do you have any natural resources within your own heart, your mind, your spirit, whatever you wish to call it? Do you have hidden resources waiting to be tapped? So solitary confinement, we know in prisons, is really horrible very painful kind of punishment. 
okay, you get three months in this eight by eight cell. And we're not gonna torture you, we're not gonna give you, make it too hot or too cold, we give you enough food, here's your toilet. And now you get to hang out by yourself. And I think that's pretty severe punishment. And the reason it's punish, punishing, and so many people find it so painful, is now there's them and their minds with no buffer zone. There's no television, no entertainment, nobody to talk to. Nothing to get your mind off your mind. And what can torture you more than your own mind? Whereas in contrast to that, a very dear friend of mine who's been a monk now for many, many years, longer than I ever was, and very, very, very socially active, done many, many wonderful things in the world, philanthropy and so forth. But when he hit 60, he said, I'm going to give myself a little break here from many, many activities, kind of all virtuous. And he just gave himself nine months of total solitude in a little cabin up in the Himalayas. Whereas all he was just by himself in his cell, same word they use in a prison, in his cell, with no, no, I mean, apart from beautiful landscape, that was it. His Hedonia was, yeah, those are really beautiful mountains. And he spent nine months in solitude. And he came out of his nine months, and I asked him, how was it? And he looked at me with a smile I can't even emulate. It was just such sweetness. And he looked at me with his incredibly sweet, gentle smile, a twinkle in his eye. He said, Alan, it was a river of gold. It's a river of gold. And so I know this a little bit from my own experience, but I've met extraordinary people, as I've said a number of times by now. He was one of them, is one of them, still alive. How does that happen? Did he just kind of walk off the street and decide to go into solitude? No, he'd had lots and lots of practice cultivating his mind, cultivating his mind, like a farmer cultivates a field, and if it's a skilled farmer and the soil is good and the moisture, fertilizer and all of that is there, you sow the crop and then you reap a bountiful harvest, the Buddhist term, the Sanskrit term that we translate as meditation in the Buddhist tradition is bhavana. Bhavana has an entirely different connotation than the English term meditation, which people get into meditation. What are you into? I used to be in tennis and I was into jogging, but I'm really into meditation. But I've heard about ayahuasca and that sounds like it might be better. <laughs> or marijuana is legal. Woohoo! And it's so much faster than meditation. Meditation might have to work out for a while. And so in meditation, it has that kind of quality. Some people are into it, some people are not into it. But, you know, an appropriate amount, so you might get carried away. 20 minutes you do it. 20 minutes a day, you should do it. Good. Meditative hygiene. But the Sanskrit term meditation has an entirely different connotation. It means to cultivate. Cultivate, again, just exactly like a farmer cultivating a field. If you just let it be just there, then you may have a lot of bushes there that are very happy for the rabbits, but you won't get anything out of it. But if you cultivate it, then it can be a source of food, nourishment for many people, including animals. And so can you, can you let your mind be fallow? Isn't a fallow field isn't one that you don't cultivate, you're just kind of hanging out there? Do we have minds that are fallow, basically unexplored, untilled, uncultivated, so that the natural resources, the potentials of the mind, is it possible to get through a whole life and never have discovered the potentials of your own mind? And could there any be, be any greater loss than that? Henry David Thoreau, one of my heroes, especially in my teens, one of my guiding lines, he gave his rationale for heading off to Walden Pond for two years of solitude. 
and I, I should quote him, I don't want to refer to I should quote him because his prose is so beautiful, but in essence he said, I retreated into solitude for those two years so that whatever life is, I may know it as it is, and if it's bitter, I will say it's bitter, and I will call it out to the, from the rooftops, life is bitter, but if it is sweet, I will know that too, but my aspiration was before I die, I will know what it has been to live and not find when I die, I never even know what happened. My prose is not nearly as good as his, but that was the gist of it. I want to, I want to cut back life to the, to the bare essence, to the raw core, and see what it's like without distraction, without entertainment, without getting flooded by hedonia. I just cut it back to the core and see what it is. What does it mean to be alive? And so that's what the Buddha is getting at here, the cultivation of, literally it's called samadhi, but samadhi is not just single-pointed concentration. That's the narrow meaning. But samadhi means a unification, an integration, a fullness, a wholeness, and a balance of the mind in multiple aspects. That you've cultivated your mind such that even without any pleasant stimulation, external or internally generated, the symptom of a mind that is well-tuned, well-cultivated, is even without stimulation, is a sense of well-being that just flows from within. That's a true statement. But whether it's true or not, then you'd have to check. You can't just learn somebody else say it's true, well, it's true for him, whatever. That's one of those things, you either learn it for yourself, or you just believe, or disbelieve, as you like. And I think I get to hit an X again. There it is. Aha. And then, this is the culmination of Buddhist worldview, but it's a culmination in Christian mystical writings, culmination in Hinduism, culmination in Taoism, culmination in Aristotle and Plato, the highest hypodemonia, the highest, the supreme level, the, the zenith of genuine well-being is the well-being of knowing reality as it is. And the many different aspects of reality. As the scientific community for 400 years has shown us just millions and millions of data points, so much information we've learned. A lot of it very useful, and almost none of it relevant to eudaimonia. That's not the strength of science. It's just begun, the last 20 years of, of positive psychology. They've begun. The Johnny-come-lately of the scientific scene. 400 years of physics, etc., etc. But the science of happiness, science of eudaimonia, well, we just discovered it, but we've forgotten so much. A truth-given joy. Reality, aspects of reality, the most fundamental aspects of reality, the knowing of which frees us, the knowing of which gives rise to the deepest dimension of well-being that carries us through life and through death, through felicity, through good times and bad times. So then we move on. And so cognitive there's, there's cognitive intelligence, embracing ideals, aspirations, intentions, and so forth, that if you devote your life to that, that it will pay off. It will yield a rich harvest, and you will find the happiness you're seeking. That's cognitive intelligence. Whereas there are also cases of cognitive unintelligence. And these are scientific statements here. This is not just a belief system or some whatever religion or what have you. But there's a triad here that I'm putting together because I think they're profoundly interrelated, inextricably tied together. One of them is a worldview. It's the worldview of materialism, and many of my colleagues and friends and so forth 
are materialists. Not all, most of them are not scientists, although there are many scientists who are. It's a world. It's a worldview that simply asserts that all that's real, the universe, is comprised of physical phenomena particles, waves, space-time, matter, energy, and their emergent properties, their functions, and that's all there is to it. Such that really the only kind of facts are scientific facts, and the rest of it, everything else is kind of woo-woo, you know. And so materialism, that everything really boils down to matter, and of course the mind, consciousness, spirit, it's a function of the brain, and so many people believe that, or at least they say they do. And so there's a worldview, and it's, it's, it's promoted by many intelligent people, I know quite a few of them, uh, but then if that's your worldview, that you are really simply, you are 100% a biological organism, that is all there is to you, and your mind is simply a function of your brain, and there, in fact there are no non-physical influences on your brain, if you start following the implications, they start looking grimmer and grimmer the farther you pursue them. If that's your worldview, then when you get back into your life, you're stopped philosophizing, thinking about reality, and you're back to day-to-day -day living. What will you pursue? What will be your vision of happiness? And I have watched, and overwhelmingly, the vision of happiness that comes, that's rooted in and emerges from a materialist worldview is hedonism. That it is consumption. It's, and it's not just crass and vulgar. It could be the arts, music, literature, poetry, theater film, and so forth. The good life, it's going on vacations, it's acquiring cool stuff, it's getting a super good education, and so forth. But it is hedonia, pretty much start to finish it's hedonia. And my concern is there's 7.8 billion of us, and the vast majority are thinking that's what's better. More hedonia, more consumption, more, more. And the inequality right now is unprecedented in all of human history. When has it ever been true that eight people own as much as 3.5 billion people? And that's true right now. The eight richest have the same amount of assets as the 3.5 billion people who are on the, on the low, the bottom of the totem pole. So hedonism, not as something crude or crass, but simply that happiness is to be found out there. Even the mind is found out there. It's in the brain. Look at the brain, you're looking at the mind. The mind is simply what the brain does. And then when you get into a lifestyle that's rooted in the worldview of materialism and the value system of hedonia, then, of course, it's all about consumerism. And this, you know as well as I do, this saturates modern media. A, a society that's consuming a lot is a really healthy one. The consumer index is going up. Yay! But one of my, William, William, one of my intellectual heroes, and I have tremendous respect for him in so many ways, one of the great pioneers of modern psychology, William James, he wrote brilliantly on so many topics, religion, philosophy, psychology, of course, but this one pithy statement, the essence of scientific materialism is that matter always ends in, and now my slide isn't working, so I'm going to read yours, ends, oh, ends, I can tell you, in tragedy. <laughs> that got edited out. <laughs> not just that it ends, it ends in tragedy. The essence of science is that matter ends in tragedy. I mean, the planet, you know, the planet, what, five billion years ago, it's going to go poof, it's going to go and get consumed by the sun. Matter just doesn't turn out well. In Buddhism, we call it aging, sickness, and death. Whereas my father said he's still alive, happily, at the age of 95, but it was about 10 years ago. He said, from now on, it just gets worse. <laughs> and he was right. 
I've had to speak louder and louder and louder with big mouth movements to be able to communicate with my beloved father. And he lost his beloved wife five years ago after 69 years of marriage. That was difficult to deal with. It all got worse. He has loving children, he's doing well. But still, 90 is what? Old age is not for sissies? That's the way it is. Materialism doesn't, doesn't end well. It never does, never has. And so when we're thinking of something better, we might want to look beyond the worldview of materialism, which is living inside a little peanut shell, as far as I can tell. It's such a tiny world and such a flat world, like a flat earther. If that's all you think is real, it's just stiflingly small. And hedonia, important, but never satisfied. Consumerism, with 7.8 billion of us, we're destroying the planet. So there's a classic text that my wife and I have translated from Sanskrit and Tibetan, 8th century Shantideva. Remember I mentioned him? This is the most widely studied, practiced, taught text in all of Tibetan Buddhism for like the last millennium, for very good reason. It really is a superb classic with so much wisdom. But all the verses of this text, about 100 pages long, this is the one verse that I think just really <coughs> comes to my heart and just stays there. It just keeps on reverberating. Because I find it to be so true in my life on occasion. And then I look outside and see so much evidence. And here's what he says. Those desiring to escape from suffering hasten right towards suffering. With a very desire for happiness, out of delusion they destroy their own happiness as if it were an enemy. We can think of political figures. We can think of successful people across the whole spectrum. And how often is that true? How often is that true? I saw a very touching documentary just a month or so ago by a, a brilliant musician. I really have deep admiration for him. Is it uh, David Crosby? Crosby, Stills, Nash? Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young? Rings a bell, at least for my generation. A really brilliant, beautiful voice, marvelous uh, songwriter. And on Netflix, there's a documentary in which he really showed almost staggering candor of describing his life and his errors and the, and the harm he'd done, and his successes and his failures, I just found it searingly honest. But it, say, it made it so painfully obvious that rising to the very top, the highest levels within music, who was more famous back you know, 40 years ago, Beatles, but not many others, more than Crosby, Sills, and Nash. And in terms of money, lots and lots of money, he said he had sex with 200 women. I find that just an exhausting thought. <laughs> and then fame, and fame actually came to one Dharma talk he gave about 20 years ago, introduced himself, just twi you know, two was enough, <laughs> two Dharma he was finished. Um, but he came up and he introduced himself, and I just praised him for his music, and he said, Alan, when it comes to music, I just try to get out of the way. So I found it very touching, and even though it was a very mottled life, heroin, addiction, and so forth and so on, I'm not going to go into details, he did. But it just made it so painfully clear that he was always looking for freedom from suffering, and yet sowed so many seeds for his own suffering, wanted to find happiness, and yet he hardly had any friends by the end of his life, because he'd harmed so many of them. And he said it was out of anger. Again, the candor, I'm not here at all to judge him or criticize, but just his sheer, searing honesty that I've lost my friends out of anger and saying really brutal things. He said that, he said, wow. Congratulate for you for your honesty. And he really was trying to mend his ways. What more can we ask of anyone? 
We try to mend our ways, make amends. But there it is. That just always pulls at my heartstrings to see, for us as humanity, how often this is still true. For ourselves, our political leaders, businesses, and so forth, uh, there's a lot there. And then we go. Genuine happiness is a topic that has been reflected upon by great philosophers and so forth for millennia. But I would suggest there are also two types of unhappiness. And this is direct parallel. Stimulus-driven unhappiness is where something, something disagreeable happens to us. We have, we're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. We have memories from the past that traumatize us or we're fearful of the future, or we encounter a really disagreeable person or circumstance, we suffer ill health, and so on. And so we experience unhappiness in response to something unpleasant that happened to us. Stimulus-driven unhappiness. Very straightforward. And it's not terribly interesting. In the sense that when something unpleasant happens to us, then we're asked, well, how do you feel? I feel miserable, and then the finger goes out. I'm so unhappy because, hmm. And then we point to what is making us unhappy. I don't think anything ever makes us unhappy. If by make, you mean like a potter making a pot. A potter really does make a pot. Does anything make you unhappy? Such that you have no freedom whatsoever. They make you. I couldn't help it. He made me. Okay, well, so, you know, slaves are made to do things they don't want to do. Sometimes we're made to do things that we don't want to do. But can anybody make you unhappy? But the finger so easily goes out. I'm unhappy, and then the finger comes out. It's very easy. And then if I can make that stop, then, okay, then I'm no longer unhappy. But what I find much more interesting is this second type. I call it genuine unhappiness. And this is stimulus-independent unhappiness that arises from within without apparently being triggered by any outer or inner circumstances. You're not thinking unhappy thoughts. You're not having any, any internal stimulus that's making you unhappy or anything outside. You're just unhappy all by yourself with no help at all. <laughs> so we have the complete capacity. We are powerful. We can make ourselves unhappy with no help from anybody else at all. And one of my favorite scientific studies I've heard of, I've quoted it many times, not too many years ago, five to ten years ago, a study was done, I think in America, took two groups of people, they, they carefully sorted them, make sure they were very similar groups, and what they did for each individual, a psychologist running the study, is they put each individual in a room with a chair, an empty room with no stimulation at all, just an empty room, and a chair, and they said, sit there for 15 minutes. There's nothing to do, except, if you like, there's a little electric socket here, you can put your finger into it. <laughs> it won't kill you, but it give you a very disagreeable, but that's it. You can just sit there and mind your own business for 15 minutes, or you can stick your finger in the little socket if you like to. There's no, there's no door number three. I mean, that's it. Just sit there and be with your mind, or shock the hell out of yourself. So they had a group of men and women. I think they actually parsed them this way. Men here and women there. The men came in. They did this. And you can just you know, like play, play around a little bit. What percentage of the men do you think stuck their finger in the socket <laughs> in a 15-minute period? And if you guess two-thirds, you're exactly right. And the outlier put his finger into the socket 180 times. <laughs> I can only imagine what his mind was like because he found that was more pleasant <laughs> than just being with his mind with no buffer zone. 
the women, and I think, you know, you, you probably saw that, uh, that statement by Obama not too long ago, just generally speaking, women would be better in government than men. A little bit of a blanket statement, but I, I think he has some, something of a point there. But um, for the women, how many of them put their finger in the socket? 25%. So if somebody's sitting in the White House, I'd rather have it a person who would avoid the socket, <laughs> including the nuclear button. I'm really bored. I wonder what will happen if I push this. But see. So yeah, women just generally seem to be a little bit more sane, <laughs> dare I say. But I found that very interesting. And then you compare to that to my friend who went off into nine months of solitude. And then another person in a very similar cell, no big views, and finding solitary confinement is extremely painful. So this raises, now we're using our intelligence. Now we're really honing in on cognitive intelligence. Because we do want to be happy, generally speaking, whether it's the meaning of life or not. Nobody is, is the same friend who spent nine months in solitude. He said, nobody wakes up in the morning and said, I think I'd like to be really angry today. Or I think today I've had enough happiness over the last several days. I think today would be a good day for just sheer misery. Let's try that out. You know, people don't wake up that way. Just generally speaking, when it's suffering, no thank you. Happiness, yes, yes it's possible. But we're intelligent. We're not just experiencing the effects. We're intelligent. We know about cause and effect. We know that one thing leads to another. And frankly, for those in, in, interested in Buddhism, it's really fundamentally all about causality, natural causation. Not God doing it, or not spirits and demons and so forth. It's things happen in nature because of natural causes, and that absolutely does include mental causes which are not physical. So it's not the idiotic notion that is still dominating the, the National Institute of Mental Health. I'm astonished. The policy of the National Institute of Mental Health of our beloved country right here is that mental, dis mental diseases are basically nothing more than brain malfunction. That's, that's policy. A friend of mine told me that $13 billion was just spent by the National Institute of Mental Health recently pursuing that and came up with nothing. And we have antidepressants as the major intervention for depression, and yet a friend of mine, who's a research psychiatrist focusing on depression, he told me, and he's a professional in the field, virtually no cases of depression are fundamentally caused by chemical imbalances in the brain. Virtually none. And yet that's how we're treating them, as if they all were. I think this cognitive intelligence, isn't it? Of not knowing what makes people unhappy. And then treating the symptoms with side effects. And then I've read just recently that if you're on antidepressants and you get off, then you get kicked in the teeth again with withdrawal symptoms. So we're back to Shantideva. While wishing to be of suffering, we're hasting after the cause of the suffering. Materialism itself, I think, is a major cause of, of depression. And when those promoting mental health are also promoting materialism, I think we've got a big problem. But what are the causes and conditions of unhappy unhappiness? This is cognitive intelligence. We don't want to suffer, so apply cognitive intelligence. We do want to find happiness. What are the causes? What are the causes within this world that we can identify in our own experience? And when it comes to unhappiness, I've given a lot of thought to this. Again, I find it very interesting. And my sense is that virtually any outer circumstance could possibly trigger unhappiness for someone. And I pose this question many times to audiences this large or even larger. Can you think of anything at all that could happen in the world out there that couldn't possibly trigger unhappiness for someone? And people have raised their hands, space, and I said, yeah, as in agoraphobia. The space was a good shot, but some people are terrified of space. And having kids, eh. 
getting married, getting divorced. I have not been able, not one person has raised, raised a, something that could not possibly trigger unhappiness for someone. And they couldn't come up with anything. Maybe you would. But we have to move on now. Times are passing and <laughs> running out. It seems like almost anything can trigger unhappiness for someone. And we have so little control over government, economics, finances, even our own spouses. And we really want to control a spouse anyway. And children and so forth. We have so little control even over our own bodies. We can have a healthy diet, healthy, 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 and then still die you know, untimely death. And so virtually anything could trigger. But what are the true causes? Why do some people in very fortunate circumstances suffer from debilitating depression and other people, I know some of these, living in concentration camps for 15, 20 years, I know people like this, who turned it into a meditative retreat. As one of my mamas said, who was incarcerated in a Chinese communist con concentration camp for 18 years, he said, I was happier inside the prison than most people are outside. Because he turned it into an 18-year meditation retreat. Another lama, Gachin Rinpoche, similar, 18, 20 years, he just started teaching meditation to others. In fact, there was the head yogi in the concentration camp. He was teaching everybody else meditation. They, they became great yogis in the concentration camp. You know, so that's one of the most dire circumstances. I've learned a lot about it, because I've translated for one, one monk that was in concentration camp for 35 years, Baolin Gyatso, and torture, not just starvation and working them to death, but torture. And people can flourish in that. There are people who can flourish. So it's not determined by the outside. It's a simple point, but it's so important that our happiness is not simply directly correlated with what's outside. And we look inside, and now here's a Buddhist diagnosis. Three fundamental toxins of the mind, afflictions of the mind, craving, hostility, and delusion. This could, we could easily spend a couple of hours on those three alone, but I'd like to just focus on one because this one needs to be understood with some, some nuance. And that is, when sometimes here, in, according to Buddhism, desire is the root of suffering. And the English have a nice word for that. It's called bollocks. Have you ever heard of bollocks? It means nonsense. That's rubbish. It's ridiculous. Desire is not the root of suffering. There are many desires that are wonderful, noble, sublime, virtuous, meaningful. You can think of a whole bunch of them very, very quickly. But in Buddhist tradition, when we speak of the mental afflictions of craving, of attachment, this is rooted in delusion, a kind of desire that fundamentally identifies something that is not a true source of happiness as being so. My happiness is there. We point the finger to the person, the job, the look, the wealth, the prestige, the power, and what have you. We see it as the very veritable source of our happiness, and then we glom onto it, desperately trying to get it and hold on to it. And of course, as one Buddha sage said, whenever we cling to anything with attachment, thinking, this makes me happy, this husband, this wife, this job, this money, this, and we're clinging to it, one of two things will happen. That which you have now gotten and you're holding on to so tenaciously, as this makes me happy, one of two things will happen. It will disappear, or you will disappear. There's no third option. It's not sustainable. That's the bottom line. And so we superimpose, we exaggerate, and then we desperately seek to acquire that which we see externally as a source of happiness and get rid of that which we see externally as a source of unhappiness. But the source of the happiness have always been within, and the sources of unhappiness have always been within. And they're not physical. You can't measure them. You can identify them. You can, for yourself, see 
how certain tendencies of the mind set you up for suffering and tendencies of the mind set you up for genuine well-being. So the, in Tibetan, the term for Buddhist is nangba, which means insider. It doesn't mean insider in an, in, a, in an elitist fashion, like we're insiders and you're outsiders. It just means that if you're a Buddhist, you're an insider in the sense that you have this fundamental premise that the sources of my, of the sources of my unhappiness are essentially inside. They're not out there. Out there is not irrelevant, but that's not fundamental. It's not primary. The sources of my unhappiness are here, and the sources of my happiness are here, inside. And my happiness is not contingent upon other people's behavior or what's happening in the outside world. And my freedom from suffering is not going to be just by shaping things outside. So in terms of the pan-Buddhist ideal, as we slowly come to an end here, essence of all of Buddhism. And yet I see similar themes in other great wisdom traditions, spiritual tradition. The Buddha said, abstain from all evil deeds. This is actions that are harmful to ourselves and others. Devote yourself to a bounty of virtue. Virtue is those ways of viewing reality, engaging with reality in a way that is truly beneficial to ourselves and others. Subdue the mind, calm the mind, heal the mind of its afflictive tendencies, that this is the teaching of the Buddha. So it's not a matter of belief. It's not fundamentally believe this, believe that. But it's the way we engage with reality. And then a very rich set of Pith aphorisms. This is from the what the 11th, 12th century. One of the great sages of Tibet. And we come to a close here. Sajin Kunganimbo, and he stated, "If you cling to this life, you're not a Dharma practitioner. Cling to this life doesn't mean you just want to survive. There's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with wanting to survive. But we know by context what he meant here." is clinging to the, to, the, to the mundane. If you cling to, if you're banking on, investing on, betting your life on, hedonia, many people do. The poll of the just recently of young people, and something like, I don't know, 75% of young people thought, what do you want out of life? To be rich. I wish they'd had, some, had something in kindergarten that would told them there's nothing wrong with being rich, but don't think it's going to make you happy. And so if you're clinging to that, if you're clinging to hedonia, then don't call yourself a Dharma practitioner. The Dharma practitioner, by definition, whether Christian, Buddhist, or what otherwise, or Socratic, is really recognizing with cognitive intelligence what really can make you happy. It's no gimmick. It's a, it's a lifelong cultivation. As the Dalai Lama said, though, it is the meaning of life. And there is something better. But it's better that we bring to the world and not what we get from the world. If you cling to samsara, and just more broadly speaking, thinking happiness is up there, happiness is up there, broadly speaking, in some future rebirth, from some future life, oh, I'm miserable this lifetime, but I'll be happy when I'm born there, then you don't have a spirit of emergence. You have not recognized the true causes of suffering. You don't have a clear, cognitively intelligent vision of what would really bring you the happiness and the joy you seek. If you cling to your own self-interest, that's not bodhicitta, this is... Buddhist term, bodhicitta, the aspiration to achieve perfect spiritual awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. But if you're still prioritizing your own individual well-being, your own personal well-being over that of everybody else, then you've missed, you've missed the target. And finally, if grasping still occurs, that's not the view. This can be interpreted in different ways, but I'm going to interpret it right here in the context of cognitive intelligence. If grasping, if you're still thinking that if I just had more money, 
if people just respected me more, liked me more, admired me, appreciated me more, if I had more influence, more power, then I'd be happy. And grasping to these ideals, these aspirations, is out there and I'm going to pursue it, then you don't have an authentic view of the actual nature of happiness and the true causes of happiness and of unhappiness. You're misguided, you're cognitively unintelligent. So then we come, oh, a big topic that I'm going to deal with very, very quickly, but it's enormous. And it's one, the, free, the issue of free will. And free will has been a topic of heated discussion and debate, at least for the last 1,500 years, going back to St. Augustine. Do we have free will or not? Number one, I think many of the philosophers and theologians and even scientists, psychologists, neuroscientists, they don't even, de they don't even agree on what they mean by it. Um, but I'm going to define it in a way that's pragmatic rather than metaphysical, ontological, or theological. Free will as the ability to make decisions and to act in ways that are, in fact, conducive to one's own and well, others' well-being. Well in order to the, the ability to make wise choices, that truly, if you follow them, they will turn out well. Free will is something not, not that we have or we don't have. So free will is something we can cultivate. And then, in a very practical way, I look back on my own life. Have there been occasions in my own life when I had less free will than other occasions? I've been drunk twice in my life, and both more than 50 years ago, or about 50 years ago. But I did it twice just to make sure I didn't miss out on anything. <laughs> and I was 19 the first time, and I tried on one night. I wouldn't really recommend this, but if you really want to entirely destroy any taste for alcohol, it's very effective. Beer, cheap wine, and whiskey all in large quantities on one night. I tried that, and I found I was very, became very expert at projectile vomiting. But I didn't really like it, and I had not as much freedom as I would otherwise have. And so getting drunk, taking drugs, or falling into a fit of rage. I've experienced anger on occasion, and I know I'm less free, let alone rage. If I'm feeling grumpy, irritable, and so forth, less freedom. If I kind of get greedy or selfish, really self-fixated, self less freedom. If I experience jealousy, definitely less freedom. And so the whole of Buddhist ideal is not as whether we have freedom or not, but recognize occasions when we have less and how can we cultivate more. And so in this way, the more the mind is dominated by these mental afflictions, craving hostility delusion, the less free we are. And then this comes from modern psychology as well as Buddhism, and we have the whole quote here, and that is to metacognitively or introspectively monitor the mind and recognize desires before they trigger behavior, manifest in behavior. And so this is a skill. It doesn't come naturally. And we have not biologically adapted to do this. I've had long conversations with a very dear, highly respected friend of mine, Paul Ekman, world-class affective psychologist. But what he says about emotions is equally true here. He makes the point when, if you can develop the ability to know the emotions you're experiencing before you express them, that will save you a lot of wear and tear. If you can see this is a really disruptive or antagonistic or toxic emotion coming up, and it really wants to jump out the mouth. It wants to express, it wants to press itself out into the world. I have to get this off my chest. I have to give you a piece of my mind. And you know, whenever somebody says that, they're going to give you the worst piece. <laughs> so 
So when emotions come up, they want to express. We want to get it out there where everybody knows. I'm so unhappy about this. what you did. Uh, and have that metacognitive awareness to see the emotion come up, you see the desire come up, and just a light of intelligence. If I express this desire, act on this desire, express this emotion, how is it likely to turn out? Will I get what I want? And that's cognitive intelligence, it's also emotional intelligence. Recognizing emotions we can't simply control, we can't just make them go away. Desires come up and they may not go away so easily, but do we act on them? And do we have a discerning intelligence to recognize, here's a desire that is worth investing myself in. And here's one, probably let it pass. Here's an emotion that really wants to come out, maybe give it a rest. And if something needs to be said, wait until the mind maybe not quite so unfree. And so I find this very practical advice. Very practical advice. And finally, the last slide. And I'm finished. How about, I love ideals. I read often in the press, don't try to be a perfectionist. Don't, you'll never get there, it'll be frustrating. Bad idea, don't be a perfectionist. Don't strive for perfection. Who's perfect? Nobody's perfect. Stop it, get real, recognize your limitations. And I say the hell with limitations. Why not strive for the best? And if you don't realize it, then you say, well, I was going in the right direction. I really believe, why not aspire for perfection? Not in the sense of being superior to anybody, but just, why not? Why not? What's wrong with that? I mean, Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's kind of a high deal. He didn't say try. He didn't say, we'll go halfway or just kind of, you know, try to be good dudes. It's a pretty strong order, and be perfect. If Jesus said that, I'm not going to refute him. Sounds good to me. So can we imagine? We have this great big frontal cortex, right? Not only to remember and plan and figure out, but also to imagine that which is not yet actual, but is a possibility. And I love to think of reality being comprised of two large departments, the actual and the potential, the possible. And possibilities are as real as actualities. Otherwise, nothing would be possible that isn't already real. Possibilities are real. And to imagine, I love to imagine, I love to envision that which is not yet actual, but know that that possibility is real. And if it's a meaningful one, then why not devote oneself to it? So what would the perfection of cognitive intelligence like? I don't have the right answer, but I'm going to toss some things out and then we'll call it an evening. Having the wisdom to desire only that which is truly beneficial to oneself and others in this life. That would be a lot. That would be a lot. Knowing what desires and intentions lead to happiness beyond this life and acting upon them. In scientific context, it's very often said, I mean, just like every day, consciousness is one of the few remaining mysteries in modern science. They can't define it, they can't measure it, don't know where it comes from. Widely stated, widely, widely acknowledged. Consciousness, one of the final frontiers of a problem we've not solved, we've not fathomed. And it's true they haven't. Because science is overwhelming is looking outwards to the objective, the physical, quantifiable. Little problem. Consciousness is not objective, and it's not physical, and not quantifiable. So if that's where you're looking, you can be looking for a long time and never figure it out. But then we have contemplatives, Christian and Jewish, Buddhist and Taoist, Hindu and so forth great philosophers who are looking inward and they've made a strong case. Consciousness is not that much of a mystery. And so as a hypothesis that can be tested, 
What if consciousness doesn't emerge from the brain? There's no, there's no explanation how it could. Nobody's ever come up with an explanation that makes any sense, frankly. What if it's not? What if matter is not primary? It's just a belief, it's not a scientific fact. What if consciousness, just like space-time, is conserved? You never have space-time turned into nothing. You never have space-time emerging from no space-time. Space-time shifts, it, it, it changes over time, but it always, formations of space-time change into later formations of space-time. And likewise for mass-energy. You never get nothing turning into matter. Nothing turning into energy. You never, that never happens. And any configuration of matter-energy never turns into nothing. Turned into all kinds of things, but never into nothing. What if consciousness is as elemental to reality as space-time, matter, and energy? What if? Since there's really no explanation for it emerging from space-time or matter-energy, it's just a belief with no cor corresponding evidence. What if consciousness is as fundamental as anything else? In which case, your consciousness didn't emerge from matter, which is real magical thinking, didn't emerge from nothing. Nothing can't give rise to anything, it's nothing. What if consciousness gives rise to consciousness? And what if this human life is a chapter and not the whole story? Just what if? There was an article, What If We're Coming Back? It was written about a year ago in the New York Times. You can find it. They keep all their articles. What If We're Coming Back? By a New York Times op-ed writer. It's a woman. And she says, I don't believe in reincarnation. But what if it were true? What if it were true? What if we in this modern generation what if we're coming back to the world that we are destroying right now? Might we be a little bit more responsible if we're not just leaving this for our kids and grandchildren, but we actually have to come back and live in the world that we are desecrating? Might that be a wake-up call? I thought it was a very interesting article. Just what if? And since consciousness is a mystery, we can't say, oh no, science doesn't allow that. Science has no business allowing or not allowing because they don't know squat. <laughs> they can't define it, can't measure it. So how, you know, how far are you there? And so what if, as you sow, so shall you reap? Often it's not true in this lifetime. People get away with murder. And people do wonderful things, and they get, you know, killed, whatever, punished. What if? Just what if? Can we be cognitively intelligent in a big view? And then finally, knowing what desires and intentions lead to liberation, spiritual awakening, salvation, the greatest good, the greatest fulfillment. So I'm inviting you all to be dreamers, to imagine. To imagine what would truly make you happy. What would give you the satisfaction that is your heart's desire? And you can't do it on your own. No man is an island, the saying goes. So in order to find the happiness that is your heart's desire, that you imagine would really bring you satisfaction, the fulfillment you seek, what would you love to receive from the world around you? We all need help. What kind of help would you love to receive? And of course, you will never find that kind of happiness unless there's some very meaningful transformation, maturation from within. We're all a work in progress. Aristotle said that eudaimonia is a being at work of the soul in accordance with virtue. And there'd be more than one virtue in accordance with the highest virtue. Eudaimonia, the cultivation of eudaimonia, is in fact the meaning of life. It's something that is better. So how would you love to transform? What kind of a person would you love to become? And why not be a perfectionist? Why throttle back and say, I'm meh? Why not? 
And then when we consider our interrelatedness, just the sheer fact of our interrelatedness with everyone around us, what would you love to offer to the world? Every person here, there's no question. Every person, all of us, each of us is unique. Bring something unique to this room, to this life, to this world. There's no question about it. No one can, I can point my finger to any one of you, nobody can take your place. Once you're gone, you're one of a kind. The job you fill, certainly somebody will fill that job, but you, every person is unique. That means every person uniquely has something to offer to this world. What would you love to offer to this world that would draw on your uniqueness, your strengths, your vision, your gifts, your passions, that would provide your own life with the greatest possible meaning? So I'd love to see children raise these questions. What would make you really happy? and see how their aspirations, how their cognitive intelligence, hopefully, grows and matures, becomes wiser and wiser, so that as they're getting older, they're actually finding greater and greater happiness. And then we can say we're truly cognitively intelligent. Thank you so much for your attention. Cognitive intelligence, um, the introduction that Ami so kindly gave of me, shows what my passion is actually my response to the questions I was just posing. I do have a unique background like everybody else, and so a vision of creating a center where we bring science and contemplative inquiry together to really fathom the nature of mind, to solve the mystery. Where does human mind emerge from? What happens at death? What are its potentials? We are now in the process, well along in the process, of creating such a center for contemplative research in one of the most beautiful spots I've ever been in, in Tuscany, in Tuscany, Italy, about 40 minutes away from Pisa, the home of, of Galileo, about an hour and a half away from Florence, the home of Leonardo da Vinci. And so I think there's a film to be seen. Is anybody ready to turn on the film? I think you'll enjoy it. But it is a, it is a vision that has everything to do with cognitive intelligence. Look at our world in many ways is in a state of crisis. We are imperiling our own existence. We are decimating other species. We are damaging the environment. And a critical time is called for critical responses. This is a critical response. I'd like to introduce you to a project that I can say is my heart's design in terms of a vision of what is the greatest that I and friends of mine, colleagues, teachers, what is the greatest that we might offer in terms of bringing something truly a benefit that can be transformative and simply helpful in this modern world that has so many deep challenges of so many different kinds. We need greater wisdom in this world where we have so much knowledge, so much information, much power. And our knowledge in the modern world is coming overwhelmingly from science, for which I have tremendous admiration. And the strength of science is looking outward. It has been so ever since the time of Galileo. The strength of science in terms of the theories, the methods, the instruments of experimentation and observation are directed outwards to the physical, the quantifiable, and the objective. At the same time, when it comes to the human mind, the nature of consciousness, the potentials of consciousness, 
the nature of genuine well-being, what the Greek called eudaimonia, when it comes to leading a meaningful life. These are issues that you don't really learn a whole lot about by looking outwardly to the objective, the physical, the quantifiable. Because the mind itself, consciousness itself, is subjective. It's qualitative. It has no physical attributes and cannot be measured physically. So for the last 46 years or so, I've been trained in Buddhist philosophy, psychology, Buddhist meditation. And what I learned very early on is that two streams of meditation lie at the very core of Buddhist meditation, Buddhist spiritual training as a whole. And these are shamatha and vipassana. Shamatha is a range of practices designed to refine our abilities of attention, of mindfulness, of introspection. And vipassana is a wide array of methods of inquiry, of investigation, in the pursuit of truth through reason and through direct experience. The notion of shamatha being a kind of contemplative technology, vipassana is a kind of contemplative science, lends itself to an interface and seeking out the complementarity between the first-person approaches of the contemplatives and the third-person approaches of the scientists and bringing these together. Bringing these together in an unprecedented way in human history. Because so many scientists and so many contemplatives share a great deal in common in two ways. Wanting to know what is true. What is the nature of the mind? What is the nature of consciousness? What does it mean to be human? And what kind of a world are we living in? We don't want to simply adopt beliefs or accept popular opinion. We don't want to simply go with authority. We want to know. We want to know with certainty. As a scientist need laboratories and observatories, so do contemplatives need a conducive environment that is designed for them to be able to immerse themselves in full-time contemplative training and practice for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, non-stop. And so with this vision in mind, I've aspired for more than 10 years now to create such an environment. And for the past three years or so, friends of mine and I have been focusing on a property in Tuscany, not very far from Pisa, the home of Galileo, not very far from Florence, the home of Leonardo da Vinci, the home of the Scientific Revolution, the home of the Renaissance. It seemed a very suitable place. We found a property of five hectares or 13 acres on a hillside overlooking the Mediterranean with a panoramic view, looking out over a great valley with a lake with snow-clad mountains on the horizon. The beauty is perfect. I think we found the ideal location. The vision here is to create such an environment that is the land is conducive, the community is conducive, I and other teachers will teach there. So we'll offer the students that are very, very best to providing an environment for full-time professional contemplative training focused on these two themes of fully achieving jhanata achieving a very fine state of attentional balance, of focus, the so-called samadhi, the telescope of the mind. In addition to this, and then using that telescope, using that finely honed tool of samadhi, using that to explore the nature of reality from the inside out. In addition to that, we will, from the very day that we open the doors to this contemplative observatory, we will invite scientists. We'll invite psychologists, neuroscientists. We'll invite 
physicists, we're going to have philosophers of mind. Because we like to see this be a truly collaborative, cross-cultural, interdisciplinary endeavor where the contemplatives will work together with the scientists to study together in a complementary fashion the nature of the mind, the potentials of the mind, and to use this mind to explore. How do we come to be there? And what happens when we die? These are points that are utterly central to our existence, to understanding the meaning of life. It has the whole blessing of my primary teacher, my root lama, His Holiness Dalai Lama, that this is something that we feel will be a great contribution. It's time to bring out the best of humanity, the best of philosophy, the best of science, the best of religion, to combine and heal the world, to do what we can in one little part of our compassion. That's our motivation. So if you'd like to help with this endeavor, we'd love to have your help. Now, this film was done two years ago. Uh, this past year, we're able to purchase that property and an adjacent house, so the administrative headquarters. So we're well on the way, and the possibility, which was already real, is swiftly on the way to becoming actuality, which would be even realer. So we're only about 10 minutes for questions. If you have a question, please come up to the front, and we'll have a line this way if there's more than one person. And, uh, can I ask the question right this time? Dr. Wallace, thank you for joining us tonight. It's just so wonderful to have you here. Um, let's say you were a high school guidance counselor and a student comes to you and asks you, I would like to advance the study of consciousness and further our understanding of the human mind. What academic discipline would you suggest they uh, apply themselves to? A wonderful question, and I do encounter such young people. And the answer, the short answer is interdisciplinary. And there are such places, uh, the University of Virginia, there's a whole center for contemplative science there. So I know one of the philosophers there, he's a world-class philosopher, they have an outstanding psychology department there. They also have a division for perceptual studies. It's doing very, very daring, you know, asking taboo questions about is there any evidence that you know, some people actually recall past lives. It's very rigorous science. But I think it's interdisciplinary because nobody has a monopoly. Buddhism is very strong. I'm a Buddhist, and it is very strong. It's a factual statement. But it's very weak when it comes to the brain. There, there are no, there's no brain science in Buddhism. There's no developmental psychology in Buddhism. There's no genetics or evolution in Buddhism. So it's, they have a big portion that we, Buddhism has a big portion of the pie of looking right into the very nature of consciousness and many discoveries have been made. But what about the relationship with the body, the relationship with the brain and so forth, weak? Whereas modern science, again, the objective physical quantifiable is very strong. And then, the, and then there are many brilliant philosophers. I know some world-class ones who are just, they think deep thoughts, you know? 
And so bringing in philosophy, and there's some really very brilliant philosophers, I know some of them and I hold them in great admiration, psychologists, what, what, and neuroscientists, but there are also physicists. Because as you may know, if we look into really cutting edge mainstream physics, people like John Wheeler and Anton Seininger and other great names, it's not an opinion, it's a fact, they are really looking more and more deeply into the reality of the role of the observer in the natural world, in quantum mechanics in particular. It's, it's an unavoidable issue at this point, the measurement problem, the role of the observer, but as a physicist, you never get any training. You go all the way to postdoc in physics, quantum mechanics, and you'll never get any training at all on consciousness. And so this is a time, like never before, where the nature of consciousness, potentials of consciousness, the true sources of happiness and unhappiness, uh, that they are clearly within, but nobody has a monopoly, not any one religion or philosophy or science. So bringing this together, I think that's the way, and there are universities where you can find that, and that's a good start. And I would not confine myself to Western civilization. <laughs> I, I've been to many, many conferences where almost everybody in the audience and all the speakers are white and mostly male. And one of my favorite little quips, and forgive me for this, but I said, you know, there's a lot of question about whether there's intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, and I actually know there is. It's a place called Asia. And it's often overlooked, often overlooked. If the scientists don't know, they kind of assume nobody else does. Whereas that's kind of a big assumption. And so it's really throw off the shackles of colonialism, imperialism, and so forth that dominated European civilization like for the last 2,000 years. And you know, wake up to the fact, maybe they know some things that we don't know, as we know things they don't know. So now's a good time. If you want to be young, now's a good time. Um, because when I was young, that wasn't possible. I had to leave. There was nothing in Western civilization I wanted, so I just went AWOL for 14 years and then came back. But now at your age, there are some really good people out there, and you don't have to um, traumatize your parents to do it. <laughs> Hello, Dr. Wallace. My name is Sam. And I am interested in the potentials of consciousness of training uh, my mind. And I feel like if we had a better idea, some, some more proof of the potentials of consciousness uh, in terms of uh, future lives, I think this endeavor can take multiple lives, mm -hmm. or um, in terms of developing uh, other extrasensory sure. uh, powers. Yeah. Uh, there's some uh, yogis that you've mentioned that have developed some of these uh, extrasensory <coughs> powers. I've witnessed um, them, yeah. Why aren't they demonstrating that to the scientific community? And I believe you've had a project to develop that with your own students to recall uh, past lives. Um, what's the status of that uh, effort? I have about 20 to 30 students. I've been teaching for, now what is it, 40, 43 years? Yeah, since I was 26. I've been teaching a long time. And then over the last 12 years or so, then a number of my students, somewhere between 20 and 30 right now, are in full-time, full meditative retreat, practicing 8, 10, 12 hours a day. But they're scattered all over the place, because we don't have a center. And if you're a neuroscientist, and he had a lot of neuroscience students, but he had no laboratory, then it's hard to make any real progress. And people can, on their own, 
But we just know from experience, I know from experience, especially before you're a very highly experienced yogi, it's really helpful to have a conducive environment and access to a teacher and fellow travelers, fellow voyagers, you know? And so that's why we're in the process of creating this center. Uh, and the Dalai Lama wrote a beautiful endorsement for it, and he said, and this center which will be secular, you know? And he's lived in India now most of his life, and what he means by secular is what the Indian government means by secular. In America, you know, I taught the university for four years, the University of California. Secular means you keep religion totally out. Keep it, you know, at arm's length. Don't mix it with education by law. I respect that. But in India, the notion of secular is not that religion is ostracized or banished, uh, but in fact it means equal respect for all religions. And so this center we're creating in Tuscany is going to be inspired by Buddhism because that's what my strengths are. But we could have Christians there, we could have Hindus, we could have people who simply, I'm not anything, but I would really like to fathom nature of consciousness, and what are your methods? And the methods that we're teaching, that I've been practicing for a long time, there's no sign on the dotted line first, do you believe this, that, or the other thing? It's just, are you willing to come and look for yourself? So we're starting there, and clearly it's going to have a Buddhist orientation, because that's what I know best. But what I'm envisioning here is that we start with our strengths. But what I'd love to see, what I'd love to see is then maybe in the same valley, it's a splendid valley there in Tuscany, that there'll be another Christian contemplative research center. And over yonder a Sufi, and over yonder a Taoist. And that there'll be something like a constellation. And it doesn't have to be in one place. But I think this is really the way forward. Um, because I've met adepts from multiple traditions, and there's just no question in my mind. There's great depth. In fact, when I was 20, I read one book that's had a, a lingering impact on me ever since. And I still recommend it. I checked it out just a year or two ago, and I said, wow, that really is good scholarship. It's Aldous Huxley, The Perennial Philosophy. And he's a very smart man, a brilliant writer, and he did his research. He did very good research, asking a simple question among the great contemplative traditions of the world. If you really look into their deepest insights, are they getting further and further away, refuting each other more vociferously? Are they just irrelevant to each other, just going on their own intimate track, or are they converging? So it's basically geometry. This way, this way, or are they converging? He made a very strong case that the deeper you go, the greater the convergence. And I read that when I was 20. And coming from a Christian background, there were simply elements of the doctrine made no sense to me, so I, I couldn't really follow that version of Christianity. But I thought, well, this is a working hypothesis. And that is, what if the great contemplative traditions of the world, through history, East and West, what if they're all converging in upon the same reality? And if they are, that has to be the most important reality one could possibly fathom. So I think that's what I'll do with the rest of my life. And the path for me was Buddhism. But the Dalai Lama and all of my other teachers say, Buddhism is not for everyone. We're not here to evangelize, proselytize. It's not the only way. It's the best way for some people. So I'm at home in a Buddhist worldview. But when I encounter Christians, as the Dalai Lama, when he first came to the West in 1979, to teach, the first time he came to teach, he said, I do not, as he's teaching in Europe, and I translated for him on his first trip to Europe, and then a teacher of mine, Jeffrey Hawkins, translated for his much bigger tour of the United States. But he said, I'm not encouraging, I've, I've been invited here to come teach Buddhism, so of course you ask me, I will, but I'm not encouraging you to convert to Buddhism. If you're Christian, I encourage you, go deeper into Christianity. If you're a Jew, go deeper into that, rather than jumping the fence and jumping out. If you have to, well, okay. So he never scolded me for becoming a Buddhist, you know, but uh, I really passionately embrace that. And he wouldn't say that if he thought Christianity was fundamentally a big mistake. 
or Hinduism and so forth. If they like, I, I believe materialism is a great big mistake. Not science, but materialism. That reductionism to humans, just to atoms, I think it's a catastrophic and tragic. It always ends in tragedy. I think that's a mistake. Uh, and so I critique it a lot. But I don't go out and criti criticize Christianity or Islam or Taoism. I don't do that. I don't see any value in it. Who cares what I think anyway? So if we go deeper, and then this, this coming together, because we've never, in the history of humanity, that's 200,000 years apparently, uh, we've never faced the crisis that we are right now. And it's about 150 years in the making. And this is the biggest hurdle that humanity has ever faced, and we brought it on ourselves. And as many people, we can't just point to capitalists or communists or fat cats and so forth. We did it. We are doing it. And so we're facing the greatest crisis, which means we just have to. We have a moral imperative to give to the young people the best possible education we can to help them not only cope with but thrive and flourish in the world we've created for them. But also now's the time to just throw out all the notions, my way is the only way, my way is the best way. And say, yeah, my way is the best for me, but it has limitations. And what can I learn from you and do with you? And I think there is hope. The Dalai Lama said once, the only, the, only the only time when a situation is hopeless is when you lose hope. So let's not lose hope and draw from the best. We have so much to draw. Maybe one more, and we'll call it a night. Good evening, sir. Uh, thank you so much. It's happened so many times, as we've known, for example, the Russian Revolution, the vast inequality of the aristocracy and so forth, the vast inequality, basically slaves or serfs, call them what you like, and great misery, great inequality, and the Bolsheviks recognized that. And they had some nice ideals from each person according to their ability to each according to their needs. I love that. I love that a lot. Um, but unfortunately, they brought their mental afflictions to it. Lenin, for sure. Stalin, catastrophically. And so then they replaced one type of despotic inequality with another one. The French Revolution, the same. And revolutions, again, there's a, there's a theme that we find in wisdom traditions everywhere, and it's just such a commonplace, but it's easy to forget. Revolutions are necessary. The sign of revolution was necessary to break the shackles of the, everything we need to know we already know, which was a very strong notion in the medieval period, the scholastic era, that, well, we pretty got, we have Aristotle, we have the Bible, what else do you need? You know, we have the whole picture now, and Galileo would say, yeah, but you want to look through my telescope? You know, and we needed that, and he started this wonderful radical empiricism. I have tremendous admiration for him. And Darwin also, just that open-minded, vigorous, careful observation of the phenomena, and see where the evidence leads you, and if it leads you to something that shakes you to the very core, and it did him, 
then will still let the evidence lead you. And so revolutions are necessary, but they are necessary. The inequality of wealth we have right now is simply catastrophic. But the revolution has to come from inside. And we see people like the Dalai Lama, he's a revolutionary. But he's brought about so much revolution from within, there's no downside to his revolution. There's no downside. There's never seen any collateral damage from him. And other great ones of his, of his caliber, when they brought about this profound transformation, that wherever he goes, he brings his well-being with him. He brings his kindness with him. He's one I know well. That's why I refer to him a lot. Um, but revolutions are necessary, but we have to look in within first that what are we bringing to the table? And if we're bringing our own mental afflictions, we'll be part of the problem all over again. And a, a theme I heard last night, I listened to Elaine Pagels, a very well-known scholar of religion at Princeton. She made a comment, I've also heard it from Paul Ekman, a secular person, not religious, but very smart, very wise. And I found it in Buddhism. And it's a simple point, but ever so important. And that is, Elaine Pagels, just last night I heard it speak. And she was asked by Pico Iyer in a dialogue, do you believe in evil? Do you believe in evil? She said, well, I, yeah, I do. It's every, every day in the newspaper. How can, you, how can you deny the reality of evil? But she made this point, and I just, my heart sang when she said these words, because they're so profoundly true. She says, there is evil. It needs to be recognized as being evil. But don't call people evil. Because as soon as we say Mr. Trump or Nancy Pelosi, trying to keep it even here, that this person is evil, this person is evil. Well, if a person does a lot of evil things, then generically say that person is evil, but it's so easy, as soon as we point the figure, that this person then is intrinsically evil, this person is hopeless, this person should be simply shot. As I heard somebody simply say, why does somebody simply shoot Trump? And then we say, and now who shot him? Well, somebody should shoot him. And then who shot him? And then we just wind up shooting everybody. And so to recognize that mental afflictions, including hatred, delusion, stupidity, greed, selfishness, short-sightedness, and the list goes on and on, these are afflictions of the mind. They're afflictions of the mind. And therefore, the question comes up, that needs to come up, is how can we heal such people, and not how can we shoot them? And so if we can heal ourselves first of all, uh, that's the way to go. So it's all a balance. I'll end on this point. It's a, a favorite point of mine. But it's something I call, I just coined a term that it's already in the wind. I call it, the term I call it is a sacred tension. And it's a sacred is a tension because it is a tension. It's like, ten, like a, a string is held very tense. But it's sacred in the sense it's a pull, a tension between two noble and utterly worthy, virtuous things. And one pull of the tension is the yearning, the aspiration to go out. I was going to devote my whole life to environmental studies, environmental activism, wildlife biologist, wildlife photographer. That was it. That's the one dharma I could believe in. Save the planet. You know, that was going to be it. And yet by the age of 20, I saw, but then, what are the, why are we doing this to our own environment? I was asking this when I was 20. Why are we doing this? Why aren't we smart enough not to pollute our own environment? And it's not going to be by more legislation. We, it's because we're inside. And so then I found Buddhism was deep ecology. That the root of all our environmental problems is not in this company, that company, that political party. It's in the human mind. And so then it was a natural progression. But the sacred tension is, on the one hand, the aspiration to come out into the world and offer our best. And that's why I accept the invitation to come here. It's a weekend. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to be here. Hopefully there's some benefit. 
But that means I didn't stay at home where I had a little meditation hut and didn't spend 12 hours a day meditating in my own cabin this weekend. I love doing that. That's a big pull for me. But I'm very happy to have come and spent this evening with you all. But there's a tension to come out. And it's noble. It's a noble aspiration. And yet when we come out, it's very easy to get burnt out as well. People in, in the helping profession, so to speak, often burnout is a big issue. And the other tension is one I'm very familiar with, having Henry David Thoreau as one of my, my ideals, John Muir as one of my ideals, off into the wilderness, disappeared for 80 pounds of brown flour, you know, and, and just make, make, making some chapatis as he's hiking all over the Sierra Nevada. These were my heroes, you know, and that yearning to withdraw into simplicity and into solitude, and really fathom the depths of what does it mean to be human, what's going on in this reality, that yearning to go within and transform, purify, and discover, I think is a noble aspiration, deeply meaningful. But you can't do, at least most of us can't do both at the same time. You can't go outside and inside at the same time. So it's a tension that is defining my life for a long time now. Um, let us go out, but let's not overlook the value of just coming into simplicity and purifying our own hearts and minds, cultivating wisdom, so that when we come out, we'll have more and more better, better to offer. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.